This is uh, Mike Edelhart, and we're here with another edition of Inception, our podcast about beginnings, the beginnings of uh, companies, of new ideas, uh, new science, and sometimes even a little peek into the future. And today we kind of have all of that in a way. So I'm here with David Say, uh, the CEO of Novo Nutrients. And uh, uh, as we uh, get started here, uh, maybe more than normally, why don't you walk through just what Novo Nutrients is? Because it's a pretty cool idea and, and rather a unique uh, idea. All right. So fundamentally, what we have is a what's called a biomanufacturing technology, which means a way to make things using biology, in this case, microbiology, microscopic organisms. And um, the first thing that we're making is nutrients, uh, so ingredients for food and feed. And we're particularly interested in uh, farmed fish and shrimp, what's called aquaculture. And so the way that we make these nutrients is it's a lot like the way plants work. So if you look at a tree or a bush, those green leaves um, are capturing the energy from the sun and carbon dioxide from the air and uh, in conjunction with what they can get from their root system, make everything they need to live, to, to grow, for their cells to divide. And we use microbes that uh, really do quite the same thing, the main difference being that instead of using the energy from the sun, they use the energy from hydrogen. And instead of using this very small amounts, although problematic amounts of CO2 that are in the air, we uh, give them intense and significant amounts of CO2 from industrial emissions, from factories that are already operating and putting carbon dioxide up the flue stack. So if we're to summarize, really, it's about taking greenhouse gases and turning them into uh, feed or food. Yeah, and that's kind of the, the point, the lead, that here we have a problem on the one hand, which is industrial plants, all different kinds of things, producing way more CO2 than we know what to do with, creating a worldwide problem. And on the other hand, a current and potentially much bigger problem going forward, which is a lot of people who need to be fed and maybe even less land to feed them with. And you take that garbage CO2 that comes out of the plant and turn it into meal and other things that can be fed to say fish and in that way turn uh, real garbage into food. Yeah, that's right. Although, you know, we are proud to think of CO2 as something that can be uh, a useful input. Really, you know, these are just building blocks. It's it's uh, one carbon atom and two oxygen atoms. In that sense, it's superbly clean, um, especially if you have a way to make sure that anything else that's coming out of those smokestacks um, is not getting into the food supply. And, and that's something that our microbes do very well. And that we also take great care to, uh, to ensure uh, happens correctly. Now you have uh, a pretty uh, uniquely, well, it's both sort of broad in a way, because you've had a lot of different kinds of jobs and narrow in a sense that you've been involved in this kind of thing, aquaculture, uh, uh, synthetic biology for a while. So um, let's walk through that a little bit. So how'd you get here? Wake up one morning and said, have a good idea. Let's turn CO2 into food. Well, I um, actually, I guess the first 
time I really thought about food in an organized way was uh, was during my senior year in college. We have to write a, a thesis, and there was a economics professor, um, Ann Case, that I really liked from taking her class, wanted to work with her as my advisor. And it turned out that she and uh, some other academics had collected a bunch of data in rural India about whether small farmers were using the new hybrid crops or not. And so th these were early examples of, if not synthetic biology, at least applying genetic thinking to improving the food system. Part of the green revolution where areas which had, you know, had trouble producing enough food uh, were provided new strains of wheat or rice or corn uh, that could just grow much better because they didn't need as much water or they were resistant to um, uh, diseases and so forth. And anyway, so I, I did an econometric sort of statistical thesis on this, but then I didn't think too much about how food was made or the decisions that farmers made about their inputs for a while after, right after college, it was the mid nineties. And um, I went up to uh, what came to be known while I was there, Silicon Alley. So the sort of early web world of, of uh, Manhattan at that time and worked in web consulting, building some of the early um, web applications and web businesses. Um, uh, and after three years that <laughs> seemed like 10, um, found myself actually down in Houston, Texas, starting one of these uh, e-commerce companies with uh, a friend from college and, and a number of uh, locals. Um, and it was, you know, what today I would consider sort of on the dark side in that it was for the oil and gas industry. It was a marketplace for oil and gas equipment and services, sort of an eBay for the oil field. Um, and I didn't realize at that time, and, and I wouldn't really until around um, when Al Gore's you know, documentary, Inconvenient Truth, came out. Before that, I didn't really understand that there was man-made global warming and the oil and gas industry didn't seem so bad. Uh, I'm trying to make up for that now. Um, and so, you know, fast forward a few years and I had concluded that I wanted to do something more with bits and bytes, uh, behind me and move into the world of, of real concrete physical goods and services that, that dealt with more fundamental human needs. And, um, I read an article in Wired Magazine, uh, it was the May 2004 issue, uh, and there was a big feature in there about uh, specifically offshore aquaculture, so fish farming in the open ocean, not in the fjords of Norway or the protected embayments in Chile or lakes, rivers, and streams where really all aquaculture had taken place before, but you know, the vast majority of the Earth's water surface, which is, which is the ocean far from land. And uh, a lot of things about this article captured my imagination. Um, but among them was just the big picture, which is what was what was and and maybe to a greater extent now is happening in terms of supply and demand in in seafood, this growing population that you mentioned, Mike. Uh, and then, you know, the fact that then and now about 80 percent of all the wild fisheries are either at or beyond the limits of sustainable wild catch fishing and that all the growth really since the 80s in people eating seafood has come from farming it 
and more than half of of uh, all seafood today is farmed rather than caught. It's been the fastest growing major part of the world food system. And so there's just something about all this that came together for me, got me super excited. But it's a long way to go from, you know, operating this eBay for the oil field kind of thing to uh, to farming fish. I wasn't going to go to Norway and start in like the mail room of a salmon farm. Um, so I restricted myself to talking about it at cocktail parties. And um, about six months later, I was talking to a friend of a friend and it turned out he had independently developed an identical interest in aquaculture. Uh, he was already at that point a quite a successful serial entrepreneur with a few exits. And so uh, I started out as the aquaculture investing arm of his family office. And we rolled that um, in a few investments that we made there into a, a formal venture fund that we started called Aquacopia. Um, ultimately made five investments in various kinds of aquaculture, technology services, even farming companies. Um, and that's where I developed my interest in aquaculture feed. Um, you know, that that fund, we were definitely ahead of our time in some of the areas. I think we're going to see some of those companies are going to be very important companies like Open Blue Sea Farms in Panama and Inova Sea. Um, others will have technologies that, that may live past them, uh, notably like Nutrinsic isn't around anymore, but that technology is owned by a company called iCell Sustainable Nutrition in China. Um, and we may come back to that later. But in any case, we ended up returning shares instead of cash to our investors, which was uh, is not what you want out of a venture fund. Um, but I think some of the companies that we helped to build are going to really be exemplars for, for the way aquaculture is changing and where it's going to go. And so I was really ready to get back into startups and uh, I guess the next little chapter for me was mm -hmm. how I went about looking for, you know, the startup that I wanted to get back into. And was it a conscious, so there you were with this very specialized venture fund, you'd come kind of this long uh, curved way into uh, uh, being an investor. So was it conscious? Was it my time? I'm going to go find a company and run a company uh, uh, and make that shift? Yeah, I really formulated it and thought of it as I'm going to go find a technology that is either in a company or justifies starting one. And I want to be an executive or a, or a super active chairman. I wasn't at that point thinking of myself necessarily as the CEO or, or, you know, top manager of a company. I was very open to, to what I might find out there, but I've always believed in technology as the meaningful competitive advantage and the and it would always be at the core of companies that I wanted to be involved in. And so I went out looking for an aquaculture technology to join the management of and to uh, make a small personal investment in. And that was ultimately ended up being a 15-month process. The first three months were quite broad, if you can call aquaculture broad. I went back and, and really looked over the whole landscape. But then for the final year, I focused entirely on this problem that we've sort of been skirting around in our conversation, the problem that to support all this fish farming, we're fundamentally what civilization has been doing is catching small, bony, oily wild fish, grinding them up uh, to feed to these big uh, farmed fish and, and shrimp that we like to eat. And that's not a sustainable practice, 
both environmentally and or economically. The prices of that stuff have gone up tremendously. And you can overfish that too. It, and in fact, in many parts of the world, uh, it, they do. Uh, yeah. Particularly Southeast Asia is is a is a real problem that uh, folks have been looking at as a region. And uh, and so and science, despite working on this problem, has had a hard time figuring out economical solutions, ways to make these kinds of special proteins in huge amounts in the millions and millions of tons a year um, that can meet the really demanding nutritional needs of marine fish and, and shrimp. So uh, so how did you find this uh, technology that's now in the company? And uh, what was it about it that caused you to say, this is the one? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I I went to more and more uh, trade shows and conferences. I think I was reading more than I had perhaps even when I had been an investor, although in a much more focused area. Um, and the search took me to places like uh, soybean fields in uh, southern Missouri and uh, um, laboratories in uh, in California. And and uh, but what what ultimately um, identified this this particular technology for me was I was at a, a workshop that was run by the Anthropocene Institute. Um, that's uh, Carl and Barbara Page are very interested in looking at how we live in an age when uh, human activity is what's really changing the planet and you know trying to uh, solve some of those types of problems, including it turns out this problem with catching fish to feed fish, because it's it's probably about 300 billion of these little fish a year, um, anchovies, herring, menhaden that that suffer this fate. Um, and there's got to be a, a better way. They they agreed with that. So they put together a prize actually called um, the F3 uh, Hero X Prize. I think it was the full title. And it was a way to get commercial and academic partners to work together to, to demonstrate examples of, of in a commercial way to, to solve this problem. And this workshop was the first meeting of, of most of the parties and in some ways a kickoff towards that. Um, so because this problem was the one that by that point I had decided I wanted to find a technology to focus on, I went out there for, uh, well, there being now here to, to Northern California, I was, uh, had been living in New York at the time still. Um, and on the final day in the afternoon, there was a small trade show in the lobby of this hotel in Monterey. The, some of the events had been at the aquarium. And on one of the folding tables, there was a, a gentleman with a, a few faded color printouts and a, a couple glass vials with some uh, brown and white powders in them. Um, you know, I knew enough that I understood that these were protein powders, um, but it really wasn't until I got back to my desk in New York and, and looked at the the, the brochures uh, that I realized that they were making this protein meal from uh, industrial emissions, from carbon dioxide coming out of smokestacks. And that really blew my mind and is is the moment when I realized that there was something incredibly ambitious happening here. Um, but I still had to figure out, like, was it real? Because in aquaculture, there's a lot of technologies that seem promising or people who talk a big game, but there can often be, um, you know, nothing, nothing really there. 
uh, underneath. Um, and so uh, that really started what was ultimately a seven month period of um, evaluating um, this technology, what's now Nova Nutrients, um, along with some of the other uh, technologies that I was looking at at the time, the inventor and the rest of that team at Nova Nutrients getting to know me and vice versa. Um, I actually hired a couple independent um, PhDs who knew more about gas fermentation and uh, than I did to to provide uh, opinions for me um, on the technical merit and and qualities of the technology and the team and uh, yeah and so we got to a handshake and uh, I was CEO of Nova Nutrients by September of of 2017 so yeah. just two years ago much more directed and sort of conscious than. Uh, in many cases where folks, you know, just sort of woke from the dream or uh, couldn't stop themselves from pursuing some idea, you actually sort of meticulously went uh, uh, about identifying this one. Yeah, I had a long time to uh, explore within the world of aquaculture as an investor. So between, you know, 2004 and 2015, I got to sample here, there, everywhere. Um, as you know, you say no a lot of times, but you there you see a tremendous number of teams and and approaches, and so so yeah. By the time um, I had to put a plan together for you know what I wanted to do next, uh, I had some pretty uh, honed ideas about about what that might be, yeah. and I was I was lucky to find something that fit them. Now you mentioned gas fermentation, so it's probably a good idea if we uh, go over for folks who don't do this all the time. Uh, just what goes on here. So out comes the CO2 from the power plant. And and here are, you're talking about, you know, microbes, et cetera. So who are these microbes and what's the CO2 to them? And what does gas fermentation have to do with it? And what does this have to do with feeding fish? Sure. So we'll, let's let's uh, follow that approach. Like, it, it, let's follow the, the smoke, let's call it, the emissions gas as it, you know, uh, makes its way out of, let's say, a cement plant. Yeah. Um, so if we weren't around, if our company wasn't operating there, then the cement would go up the stack and, you know, just be dispersed into the atmosphere. And, you know, maybe we'd go from 400 parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere to 400 point, you know, huge number of zeros, one, you know, parts, because it contributes to that. Um but instead, we divert some or all of it, depending on what scale we'd be operating at, and we cool it down and then put it into a fermenter. And so, you know, you would have been to, uh, I, I know you appreciate wine, mm -hmm. so you, you've probably mm -hmm. seen a wine fermenter. Those are these big steel vats. Um, our fermenters look pretty similar to that. They have a little more of a loop shape to them. And and the function is is quite similar in that you're you have microbes and you got to give them something to grow on, uh, and they are in liquid and they they do their thing in liquid, and in this case what we're giving them to grow on uh, are the two things that all microbes need carbon and energy, and the carbon comes from that CO two that we've been following from the from the cement factory, and uh, the energy comes from hydrogen which is a gas that we have to provide. Um, it's a, it's a whole 
different part of our business about how we find uh, inexpensive hydrogen to, to put in there. But suffice it to say that those are the two main inputs that these microbes, and we're really focused on bacteria at the moment. This very special class of bacteria has evolved over billions of years with a, a metabolism, which is to say like a way, uh, a way to feed itself um, in, from CO2 and hydrogen. And so the, these single-celled bacteria um, take those gases in because those gases have been dissolved in the, in the water that they're swimming around in. And that gives them what they need to, to uh, grow and to, and to do cell division, to, to reproduce. And they create a population explosion by giving them a lot of what they want. Absolutely. And, and, you know, the generation time is super short. It's not like humans where you think a generation is like 10 or 20 years. Um, these things are really capable of doubling multiple times a day. And so you can get up to a maximum density pretty quickly. And then the idea is harvest them continually so you can stay at that density, but take off as much as you can, because those are the nutrients. These bacteria are protein rich. Um, you, you know, in some cases they've been measured to have 82% of their weight as protein. Um, you know, realistically, we're going to end up with a, a lower number, something in the seventies in all likelihood, but, um, yeah, they're, they're super nutritious. And even if you look back at, uh, world war two, um, both the Axis and the allies were we're working on single cell protein projects as a backup plan in case agriculture was, you know, partially destroyed and they needed a, a different, completely different way to feed the population. Happily, things didn't get quite that bad. Um, but now we have much better technologies. And so we don't have to wait for an, for a critical emergency. We can use this technology against the sort of the slow emergency of climate change and of, of um, the food system being more and more strained. So you've got this and they're protein rich and you grind them up and I would presume what we know from our conversations, one of the keys here is that something, fish, something actually has to like this, eat it, live on it, not die, grow. And that seems to be the case. That's right. Those are, there are a lot of requirements. Um, and the way that you determine whether you know those things are true is through a combination of of lab analysis and actual feeding trials. And so, you know, the lab stuff is you, you FedEx things to a lab in another part of the country and they email you back a report. It's super important, but you know, not that, not that conversationally interesting, but the feeding trials is a whole different matter because, you know, you have to decide what are you going to do a feeding trial with trout or salmon or shrimp or any one of the literally hundreds of other aquaculture species that are being grown out there. And then, uh, you know, we, the, some of the things you mentioned, we have, you know, jargon for palatability, digestibility, growth, functionality, histology, which is like, how does it change the organs or the body composition of, of what you're growing? And um, yeah, and so a whole part of our team is really dedicated to, to uh, qualifying our product and, uh, and also thinking about how can we tailor our product for specific applications. So you've got kind of a big challenge in front of you. This is a great idea. Meanwhile, you start by saying, back this up to a cement plant. Now, a cement plant is big. 
complex, way the hell out in the middle of nowhere, I presume, in many cases. So now you've got to figure out how to back this thing up to that plant or get it at least within hailing distance and operate it at a scale that's sort of cement size. So uh, how are you doing on that? And that's kind of the next hurdle, isn't it? It's the next uh, three or four hurdles. Uh, and, and that's because you have to take it stepwise, right? We're not going to go directly from um, our laboratory and what happens on a bench to a cement plant, which could, you know, there's, there are cement plants out there which put out more than 4 million tons a year of CO2 in a single location. Uh, and that's not even, that's far from the biggest one. And so we don't, we don't necessarily have to get to that scale to be to be successful economically, but to be successful environmentally, we certainly would want to. Um, and so, you know, we've used the word synthetic biology. One term we haven't talked about is industrial biotech, which in a certain sense is, is probably the best way to describe what we do, which is that we have to do these industrial scale processes where it's at its heart, it's biotechnology. Um, and in industrial biotech, you ask, you know, different folks have different opinions. It varies from place to place. But basically, you're talking about each step of getting larger being a anywhere between a factor of 10 and a factor of, of 30. So if we're talking about measure, we can measure this in terms of capturing CO2. You could, you know, you would maybe you go from capturing a ton a day to 20 tons a day to 400 tons a day. Uh, to and and so forth. So um, it doesn't take that many steps uh, because, in a certain sense, we're talking about things <laughs> that are, are growing faster than the than the bacteria that can only double. But um, but each step, you, we can't do multiple steps a day like the bacteria. It's probably a year, more likely two years, but for each scaling step. So we call the first one outside of the lab a pilot, then a demo, then commercial scale, then a world scale plant. Um, and uh, yeah, we spend a lot of our time thinking about how does the engineering have to change? What are the business relationships that are necessary to get to that next level? And and in many ways, most importantly, how do you pay for it? This is not about having a few software engineers, you know, writing code. Um, we're putting a lot of steel in the ground in the coming years. And, you know, unfortunately, that's, uh, that's not cheap. And so you, you really have to get different kinds of partners on board to help. Um, it's not something that a Silicon Valley startup is going to do alone or, or that ultimately even uh, venture capital funds are likely to, uh, to get into until, you know, private equity maybe, but uh, VC would support the technology, but not these big construction yeah. projects. It's one of the things, honestly, that gave us pause when we first met you. We loved you. We loved the idea. And we looked at this and said, oh my God, this is going to be expensive and take a long time, uh, and we can't carry that weight. But we decided to do it anyway, because if you can get it done, the impacts are extraordinary. The environmental impacts are extraordinary, but also the commercial impacts are extraordinary. Feeding the planet doesn't get more fundamental than, uh, than that. Uh, so you've been on both sides. So you've been an investor for a while. Uh, now you're running a company. Uh, how's that transition been? How you like being the boss as opposed to the advisor to the boss yeah it's it's i always think of it as like the difference between being a coach and a player right and when i was an investor i was coaching uh at one point you know five different teams the five companies that were, were in my portfolio and now i get to wake up in the morning focus on one team on building one thing 
it's very different. It doesn't have the 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 novelty uh, that investing had, which you know when I was in my thirties was I think very interesting to me. But yeah, now I I, I really feel better matched for um, this approach, which is more about building and more about you know getting out there and doing things myself. Um, I I I prefer making decisions to advising people on maybe what decision they should make. It turns out. Um, and I like working under the same roof with people. One of the things about being a venture investor, especially at a, at a very small fund is you could spend a lot of time, uh, at your desk, uh, with no coworkers around and, um, and the people you're working most closely with are the entrepreneurs that, that you're either considering or supporting. And they're often on another, in another state or on another continent. So it, it suits me well, um, I think for other reasons too, but yeah, it's, uh, it's been good for this phase of my life and I'm, I'm really pleased with the team that I'm working with. Cool. So one more question, cause we could go on like this for hours and we could get really geeky into this. So if we come back a year from now and have this conversation a year from now, uh, what's Novo Nutrient look like then? And what do you think you're going to look like then? So, uh, Novo Nutrients, I think will be, well, let's talk about that main challenge, this idea of scaling up. And uh, what we hope is that a year from now, October 2020, um, we'll have a, a mobile pilot out there in the world. So this will be a, a system that's much larger than anything that we have today. It'll be a thousand liters um, of fermentation volumes. And it's something that we'll either, we're designing and engineering it now with Black and Veatch. It'll be either in a container or what's called skid-mounted approaches to make it possible to move it on uh, interstates or trucks or seat by sea freight. Put it maybe even put it in a plane. We've been talking with a lot of partners in East and Southeast Asia as well as the Midwest. But so let's let's take the most interesting scenario, which is maybe someplace like. Um, I don't want to name use any confidential information. So let's say a country in Southeast Asia, maybe uh, someplace between Singapore and Australia. <laughs> maybe this particular place has um, uh, an excess of hydroelectric power, such that if you had the right project with political support, you could get electricity essentially for free. You. And then that electricity could be used to split water into hydrogen and oxygen. And, th and then so you've got inexpensive hydrogen. There are industrial plants nearby, maybe a paper mill or, um, or a steel mill or, uh, or a cement plant. And so now we have the ingredients that we need. And so the reason to bring a thousand liter pilot system over there is to prove that our technology works on site with you know direct access to those gases, um, and to convince the folks who could have an interest, let's take this to the next level. Let's go to twenty thousand liters, um, and then and move from there. So I'm really hoping that we'll have a uh, a few employees working with local partners uh, on one of these pilot projects, and who knows? It's it's even possible that we may have. Um, some things to sell out of out of that scale of production. We're we're working on developing some higher value product 
that could be produced on the same systems. And so if I was really to stretch into the realm of optimism, maybe um, we'd even be selling something. But that's more, much more likely a 2021 uh, event. Got it. And you? Me? Well, I hope I can lose a few pounds, uh, I would say. And I recommend eating fish. <laughs> yes. I should be uh, more pescatarian for sure. Um, and uh, I think hopefully not too much more gray hair on, uh, in the beard. But I, I think... I'm hoping that I'll have settled in uh, even more to this role of of being a on a team and and um, you know having responsibility for leading that team. I'm very curious to see how things uh, change as you go from having 12 employees to I don't know 20. Um, at some point, I hear there's a there's an inflection and you no longer feel like a super small company, but suddenly you have to do things a little different. People often talk about 100 as as one of the big points, but I'm sure there's something in between five and 100. So, um, yeah, but I hope we're having as much fun then as we are now. And um, uh, yeah, I just try to get a good night's sleep every night and and and, and spring ahead. Uh, there's always so much to do. Well, our partner, Bill, says eat well, get rest, and don't leave your joy behind. And uh, while you're uh, working, umpty ump hours a week. And I think in the end, that's really what it's all about. Great to talk to you. Thanks for being here. Uh, look forward to seeing what happens uh, next. Thank you, Mike. It was fun. Mm -hmm.